Well, hello, family. Jesus loves you. Grab your Bibles. Open them up to Genesis 3, verse 14. Genesis 3, 14 is where we are today. Uh, if you were here with us last week, we looked into how our first parents sinned against Creator God. Today, uh, we're going to look at the results of that, or the fallout uh, of that rebellion. Um, and I just want to make a point before uh, Dual reads today that what Adam and Eve did was not an accident, and what they did was not just a mistake, okay? Um, they had God's clear word, and they chose to disregard it. They chose to ignore it, okay? And so um, they, were de they were openly declaring and defiantly declaring their separation, not from another person, like not from another human, but from God, okay, who's perfectly holy and perfectly loving. And, and we need to have the weight of that fall on us as we get ready to hear what we're going to read today, okay? And so when we hear how severe the consequences for that are, we need to understand the context of, of who this is against and what they're actually doing. We need to keep in mind the odiousness of what they did, but we also need to keep in mind the graciousness of the punishment that they received. And we're going to see that at the end of the chapter. Um, so with that said, please give your attention to the reading of God's word. Genesis three fourteen to 24. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. But the sweat of your face you shall eat by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of the life. Thus is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Duel. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Most high and holy God, who's created the heavens and the earth and everything visible and invisible, 
and sustains all things by your very will. We thank you that we get to come into your presence today. Uh, We seek you for nourishment. And Lord, you've said that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. And so Jesus, I'd just like to ask you to do what only you can do. Feed your lambs. Amen. So just a quick recap of where we were last week. We talked, we said this, that every worldview, whether it is a a religious worldview or political or social worldview, it provides a framework or a a story, uh, if you will, to help us make sense of what we experience in life. Uh, These meta-stories or worldviews, they give plausible answers to the most important questions in life for us, like questions like, uh, how did we get here? How did all this get here? And uh, now that we, we're here, what are we supposed to do? Um, and what's gone wrong? Because something's wrong. So what went wrong? And, and we talked a little bit about that. We began to answer that question last week. Uh, in the beginning was God, and God called everything that he created good and beautiful, and he blessed it, right? He spoke a benediction over everything that he created. And that was the first couple of chapters. That was chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, right? And so the question that got brought up was, so why do we, if, if everything that God made is good and beautiful and blessed, then why do we experience so much pain and so much futility in life. And that's what chapter 3 is about. That's what chapter 3 is about. I mean, it's, it's almost, to me, it's almost like at chapter 3, ever since chapter 3 of Genesis, it's like the whole world's turned into a Martin Scorsese film or something. You know what I'm saying? Right? Like, there's deception, there's self-loathing, betrayal, lots of violence. Uh, everyone's weeping, and by the end of the movie, there's a high body count. You know what I'm saying? That's kind of what we're experiencing right now. And the question is like, so where does all this death and murder and stuff come from? Like, why can't we fix this death and pain problem ourselves? Because Lord knows we've tried. So our passage today tells us about the source of all the pain and futility, and it also tells us about what God has done about it, because he's quite aware. Praise God. So let's talk about that first part, the source. The source is this, that our sin rips apart the most essential relationships for life. There's four essential relationships in life. And it's since ripped it. It's torn it up. Okay? I've talked about these four in sermons past. And so for the sake of time, we're just going to talk about three from this particular passage. And the first is this. Sin rips apart that relationship between men and women. Or humans and humans. But particularly men and women. It's right here in verse 16, if you'll look with me. 
Now to the woman, this is God speaking, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. So you want what, you'll want something opposite than what he wants. But he shall rule over you. And that word for rule, by the way, is a negative word. So we got the battle of the sexes here, okay? First thing we need to understand is that God does address specific groups and how they're going to be punished for their sin. We can't gloss over that and flatten that out, okay? Those sin affects all people equally, universally. It does not impact all people in exactly the same way. We all have like particular ways that we tend to sin. We have particular proclivities, if you will, and how we sin and we're tempted. In other words, there's both a general and primary impact for each gender. But we should not take that to mean that it's absolute or that it's exclusive, okay? I'm, I, that may be too nuanced for some of us, but I think we could use a little nuance in our speech uh, these days. According to the Scriptures, it says that women in general, but not absolutely, meaning not everyone, they're generally impacted by sin regarding the raising, nurturing, and the connection to children and husband and those family relationships. And that negative impact on the intimate and family relationships, it's the primary but not the exclusive way that women tend to be frustrated and wounded. Really impacts us. Whereas... Before the great lie and rebellion against God, husband and wife were one flesh. They were working together, seeing each other as necessary. Complement to the relationship, sin has not corrupted that desire. Women in general, the woman in general, is tempted to resist her husband in leading the family and even tempted to undermine him and go her own way. I'm going to do my own thing. Independence, not, not, not interdependence, becomes the guiding motivation. And so a wife can sinfully amplify her husband's insecurities, magnify his weaknesses where he's not that smart or knowledgeable so that he doesn't feel confident. He doesn't feel confident to lead. She can control him or the situation by diminishing the role that he plays in their relationship. And conversely, the man, again, in general, is tempted to no longer view his bride as a gift from God and an equal partner in life, but rather he's tempted to see her as his own personal servant. A husband can sinfully dominate and control his wife instead of ensuring her flourishing. And he can do this by controlling her access to money, access to friends, education, or through speaking in a derogatory way to her and tearing her down, her confidence down, or even just physically intimidating her. Some men just have a presence when they walk into a room. They don't have to say a thing, right? So time out. Let's take a breath. And this is, the, this is your keeping it real moment. Okay, in the sermon. Um, 
It's difficult to look at our sins, isn't it? It's difficult to look at the way that we sin in particular. Why? Because we don't like talking about this in public, do we? It's unseemly. It's unfitting for us. And just like Adam and Eve did, we instinctively want to blame the other person when we start hearing our sin patterns being brought out into the light, which is what I'm doing right now. We want to blame the other person. We want to, we want to deflect. Yeah, but not me, but what about ism? What about them? What about, what about? Right? We want to declare ourselves innocent in how we, uh, in how the, how sour the relationship has become. But you know what? God wants us to see ourselves rightly. He wants us to call our sin by its right name. And He wants us to turn to Him for refreshing forgiveness. That's what He offers for us. The second relationship that sin rips apart is that relationship between humans and the earth, humans and creation. And we see this in the very next verse of the text. And I, I just want you to know, I show these things right after I stated, so you know I'm not making this stuff up. It's right here, okay? And Adam said, and to Adam, so now he's going to speak to the man. He said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife, and you have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground. Okay? Genesis is about blessings and curses, right? They're real things. God says, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So the good news is he gets to eat of it. He doesn't die on the spot, as he should. But it's going to eat it, and it's going to be toil. It's going to be painful, right? So again, in general, but not absolutely, Men highly identify with their work or their hobby or their career or their collections. Right? Work is primarily, primary, but not exclusively. It's primarily what they look to to determine if they're all right or not. If I'm winning or not. That's my marker. That's what, I'm, that's what we're going to look at. And so this, generally speaking, is the area where they are most frustrated or most wounded or can feel most threatened. After the curse, work is still good for humans, but it will not produce results because the ground itself has been cursed, God says. Okay? The ground is now actually working against our efforts to cultivate it. Whoa. It's, it's not going to work in cooperation. It used to somehow work in cooperation with us. Now it's not going to work in cooperation with us. It's going to say, no, you're going to pull that out of me. Right? Work is now toilsome. In fact, many times it's beyond toilsome. Many times our work is fruitless. Do you know what I'm saying? You put in 40 hours a week and you got that to show for it. That's fruitless. Has anyone experienced that? Just me? You know I'm telling the truth here, right? We pull up all the dandelions over the weekend, and then a week later, 200 take the place of the ones we pulled up. Not like one or two, 200. And we go, what was the point of all that that I did? You see the little kid in your front yard going, you know? True story. (laughs) 
But he was cute in five, so that's what you're supposed to do, right? What do we do? We counsel people with wisdom. And then they turn around, they end up sabotaging and demolishing the relationships anyway. We build up hotels, and then a hurricane comes and smashes it down during hurricane season. Lost all that money. Laying off some people. We work diligently in our organization to try to make a difference, but right when things are about to go to the next level and everything's in place, something changes. And our organization gets set back now. It's almost as if some cosmic force is actively working against our efforts. You know what? It is. It is. We're not just materialists. We need to understand this worldview, right? This is exactly what King Solomon experienced in Ecclesiastes 2, 18 and 19. He's, he's the king. He's got it all, right? He says, and I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. See, and here's why, here's why he hates his work, right? Seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And all the men said, Amen, right? And who knows? And here's the other thing that really gets him. And who knows whether he will be wise or be a fool with all that I've done. Yet he will be the master for all that which I have toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. See, this also is a vanity. See, sin brings futility to our work. And so work and hobbies and all that, they cannot give us the pleasure and the satisfaction that we desperately want from it. It can give us some, and then it also lets us down, if we're being honest. It's fickle. And yet we continue to believe if we just try one more idea, this will work. If we just get a little bit more data, if we could just use a little more technology, if we could just have one more conversation with that person, right? This will work. We can save ourselves the pain from fruitless work. We believe that. The third relationship that sin rips apart is that relationship between humans and God. And this is the most important one. It's here in verse 24. And so God drove out the man. Okay? So this is forceful. It's like a thrusting out. He He didn't say like, hey, there's the door if you'd like to use it. Okay? He drove, he's like, you have to go now. I'm so sorry, but you have to go now. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, by the way, whenever you read Genesis, east is always bad ever since this moment. Going east is a bad thing. Blessing is west and cursing is east. Just food for thought. And he put him east of the Garden of Eden. He placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. He drove out the man from the tree of life. Out from the tree of life. Sin separates you and me from God who is the source of all life because every act of sin is a rejection of God. Did you hear what I said? Every act of sin is a rejection of God in the moment. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Sin is always breaking off a relationship before it is ever about breaking a rule. Why? Because somebody wrote that rule. There's a person behind that. That's what you're really getting at. That's what I'm really attacking and offending. 
I don't like you and what you said here. And so God gives our first parents what they really wanted. They wanted to be separated from him. I don't want to live with you like this. And he says, okay, okay. So instead of this closeness and these walks and the cool of the evening, Adam and Eve are now driven out of the garden into the hard world under the hard sun, to use Solomon's words. God ensures that their physical body and their physical location is going to tell the truth about what their hearts really want. Did you hear what I said? This is what it means to take the name of the Lord in vain. It's not a word you say. It is the life you live. And so God's saying, look, your life is going to match up. It's going to tell the truth what you really think about me. I'm going to make that, I'm going to have some integrity here with you, some congruency, right? And what did their heart really want? They wanted to live apart from God. Adam and Eve wanted all the benefits of a relationship with God, but they didn't actually want God to have the authority to define that relationship. And so what happens? God excommunicates them from his presence. He's like, why, why are you going to be here? You're not here. You're there, so go be there and tell the truth. Right? He wants them to see and feel what it is like apart from him and in the hopes that they will long to come home to him. Before it's too late, God places a warrior angel on the east edge of Eden to let our first parents and us as well know that we cannot return to God on our own. This is how destructive sin is. It's not a misdemeanor. It's a felony. You understand what I'm saying? But the tragedy of these broken and frustrated relationships is not the end of the story. And aren't you glad? We see here that God supplies grace that repairs what you and I have torn apart. God himself supplies grace that repairs what we have torn apart. Though Adam and Eve and everyone that has been born of their line has committed high-handed rebellion against our Creator and Sustainer, God mercifully, mercifully does not give them the full and the instantaneous measure of what they deserve, which is death. He said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pass on that for a little while. I'm gonna delay that for a while. You see here that mingled among punishment is grace. Cross, I want you to see this. Mingled among punishment is grace. And God dispenses grace, not in teaspoons to undeserving people, but in shipping containers. Do you understand what I'm saying? Amen? I want you to see this. This chapter is completely shot through with grace. Mountains of grace. Oceans of grace. I mean, you could say that grace, the grace that God pours out is greater than all of our sins, you know? Grace that is greater than all our sins. That's what we see here. We're only going to look at two of the graces right now that God gives. These mitigating grace for the, the needs of the moment and God gives a future ultimate grace that actually solves the very problem of sin. Okay? 
God gives us mitigating grace moment by moment, need for need. Uh, Verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments. Garments of skin and clothed them. Right? They were naked and ashamed and exposed and they made their own clothing, right? Last week. And God says, I'm going to make your, I'm going to make garments for you and clothe you. God did that for them. The wages of sin is death 100% of the time. Spiritual death, relational death, and yes, physical death. Sin brings shame and our solution uh, for that shame that we sense and that we feel is to make clothing for ourselves, to cover up our exposure, to cover up our vulnerabilities and our, our, our nakedness. We talked about a little, that last week. We clothe ourselves with good deeds and moral deeds. We clothe ourselves with uh, successes like career success or personal accomplishment or medals in order to hide this shame that's really deep down inside. We don't want to want to see that. But the truth is that they make for flimsy garments for life outside the garden where thorns tear them and the bitter winds blow right through them. It's like trying to wear a, a windbreaker in Chicago in February. That is not going to cut it. That's what all your good works and accomplishments and stuff we brag about, right? That's what we make for ourselves. And God trades their fig leaves for something better. He initiated that. Animal skins. He made them clothing out of animal skins, it says, right? God graciously covers their nakedness and their shame with clothing that he has made himself. Like, he got the dimensions of their body. Like, it's custom made. It's right there for them. Isn't that amazing? And I don't know about you, but this brings up this question. Like, where did that clothing come from? Well, okay, animal skins. Well, where did the animal skins come from? (laughs) From some dead animals. Right? They came from the life of an innocent animal that didn't do anything wrong. And they got sacrificed so that Adam and Eve who rebelled against God could be clothed and taken care of, right? And he did that for you and me too. So that you and I could be clothed of our shame and our sinful things. There was a sacrifice made. When you and I, listen to me please, when you and I feel the weight of shame, when you and I are tempted to hide from God, when you and I are tempted to say, you know, I'm going to make my own clothing. This will work. This will make me feel better. You need to remember that God has provided better clothing for you. Okay? God's pro- are you listening to me? God's providing better clothing for you. God does expose our sin. He does expose our sin so that he can cover it. So he can cover it completely with clothes that he has made for us. So you don't need to fear that. Let me ask you this question because I love you. What are you using to cover yourself? What are you using to mitigate your own shame or feeling of inadequacy or hurt? Aren't you tired? 
Aren't you tired of constantly keeping that clothing from slipping off? It's okay to be tired. You can give that up. I urge you to trade it in for clothing that God has made for you in Christ. This is the gospel in the Old Testament. Another mitigating grace that God has given is that he gave, that he gave them is that he drove them out of the garden. That's actually grace. I know they didn't look that way or feel that way, but it is. It's grace. It's here in verse 22 and 23. I'll read it again. Then the Lord God said, behold. He's, he's talking to himself. He's Trinity, right? He's three in one. Behold, the man has become like one of us. In what way? In knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also, take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. He can't even finish the sentence. God doesn't even want to think about that for us. Do you see the love of God? He can't even finish his own thought. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. God drove our first parents out of the garden, not only as discipline, but also as a grace and a mercy for them. He did it so that they would, it literally says it right here, so that they would not eat from the tree of life and live in that state of separation and shame eternally. He didn't say, look, you made a bad choice and I don't want you making another one that you can't walk back. That's how great God is. That's how great His love is for us. Isn't that amazing? God disciplined them. Why? Because He loved them. Because He loved them. And He had a plan to reconcile them and the entire world back to Himself. Listen, God disciplines us and He lets us feel the pain of our sin so that we will not live in sin forever. We'll we'll say this is insanity. I don't want to do this anymore. That's why He lets us feel the consequences of this. He disciplines those that He loves. Not because He hates you. It's because He loves you. He desires to reconcile you to Himself. If you're feeling the discipline of the Lord right now, Please know that he loves you and he does not hate you. He's drawing you to repentance and unto life. Unto life. He does not want you to live in either rebellion or the shame that comes with that forever. He doesn't. So you know what? Embrace his discipline and say thank you and turn to him. But God also promises even more. I mean... This gets better and better the farther we go down the chapter. God also gives us an ultimate grace. God has a solution for the very problem, not just the symptoms. So check this out. It's actually in verse 15. This is a promise. God says, and he's talking to uh, the, the serpent. Okay? He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And the word literally is seed. So there's two spiritual lines of people, those that follow the serpent and those that are in the line of Eve. And I think it's interesting that uh, it's, it's the, the, the line of Eve, not Adam. But that's another sermon. 
and he shall bruise, whoever this seed is, this person is, he's going to bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's what God declares. It's a promise. Genesis 3.15. Right in the middle of this curse, right in the smack in the middle of it, God declares the first gospel. The first proclamation of good news. While he's doling out the punishment, he's saying, and there's good news coming. Isn't God great? My dad never disciplined me like that. <laughs> but good news, you know. I just felt the bad news. This is, this is the good news. The gospel of the snake crusher. <laughs> That's the seed of, of Eve. From the seed of Eve will come this conqueror, and he's going to do battle with the dragon. The devil's going to inflict much pain upon the son of Eve, but the conqueror, he will crush his head. This is the promise, by the way, that Adam and Eve heard. It is the promise that Adam and Eve believed as they went east of Eden. They went out with this promise in their ears. Isn't that great? Paul puts it this way in Romans 16. Verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Satan tempts us to sin against our God, his creation, and against one another. And we take the bait. And when we do, when we do, Satan accuses us as guilty before God. He goes, see what you did? You're guilty. And you know what? He's right. We did it. We are guilty. But you know what? The gospel says God sent the snake crusher. Jesus. Jesus has forgiven us of all of our sins so that we can come back home to God, to one another, and even to ourselves. Be fully human. Jesus is the perfect and innocent sacrifice that clothes us. He's the perfect innocent sacrifice that clothes us. But not with animal skins. He clothes us with righteous deeds that he did in his literal body. Acts of obedience that he did. In fact, John likens Jesus and his righteous deeds to clothing for all, of the, all who believe in him and put their faith day by day in him. Look at Revelation 3.17. These are the words of Jesus, by the way. These are, these are in red. Uh, he says, for you say, I'm rich. I've prospered. And I don't need anything. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and what's that word? You're naked. And so I counsel you to buy from me, he says, Jesus, buy from me white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and anoint your eyes with salves so that you may see your sins and Chad's sins against God, against his creation, and against one another. They deserve death. We deserve to be separated from life forever, and our shame actually does separate us from one another in this life right now. But God has promised to be gracious to us anyway. So for all who stop trying to clothe themselves, with their own good deeds and their successes, for all who instead trust Christ's good deeds, 
that his deeds are clothing enough, they will experience freedom from shame. And they will experience joy. They will experience life because they will be brought back into intimate relationship with God through trusting in Christ's righteousness. Isn't that good news? You see, the tree of life that was in Eden, it shows up again. The tree of life makes another appearance in the Bible. You know where? In the book of Revelation. And so we see this story. It's a big, big cosmic grand story, right? This story about God and us and the world. It's bookended by trees. It's bookended by the tree of life. It's a big deal. I'll show you. You look like you don't believe me. So here we go. Revelation 22. Verse 1 through 3. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and and of the Lamb. And that's Jesus. He's the Lamb. He sits on the throne, right? Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding fruit every month. So you're you're eating it every day. Every month of the year, right? Never goes out. Isn't that great? That's a great tree. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. I can't prove it, but I think this tree is like an aloe plant. It's a healing tree. It's for the healing of the nations. It's, it's both food and medicine. And we need both. No longer will there be anything accursed. Starts in a garden, it ends in a city, but there's a tree there. Right? The throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. God never, ever intended to keep us away from the tree of life. His plan was always from the beginning for us to eat of this tree with him. And because of Jesus, we will eat again of the tree of life day after day, year after year, millennium after millennium. It's going to be. All right, we're just going to keep eating and living with him. It's going to be great. And so, brothers and sisters, I want to say to you, trade in your righteous deeds for Christ's righteousness. Do it today. Trust that his clothing is better than your clothing that you make. And thank him for his marvelous, matchless grace towards you. Christ be praised. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, thank you for the beauty of your word. Thank you for, for the tree of life. You are the tree of life. And you tell us to eat of you every day. Eat of you. So God, I pray that your word would go into our heart. Show us where we're hiding, where we're experiencing shame. Show us the flimsy uh, things we're using as clothing to cover ourselves up. Show us how pitiful and poor and flimsy it is for a hard world. And show us the good, durable uh, clothing that you've made from your righteous deeds and your obedience and your perfect prayers. Help us take those and reach out by faith today. In Jesus' good name I pray, amen.